You're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Venom Audio Network. Welcome to The Way Home Podcast. I'm so glad that you're joining me today, my friends, whether you're listening in your car or around the house or maybe walking in the neighborhood. These are strange and difficult times that we're getting through, but hopefully these conversations can help us navigate the times that we're in. I'm excited to welcome back to the podcast, Tim Carney. Tim is a columnist at the Washington Examiner. He's also a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And he's the author of a really important book called Alienated America. This is one of the books that really helped shape my thinking after the 2016 election about some of the parts of the country that have been left behind. And he really has some interesting insights on social flourishing, why we're so tribalistic, why civility has really waned, and some of the really important and thick bonds that keep people together in our communities. I wanted to have Tim on because uh, I'm talking in this special series about some of the themes in my book, Away With Words, using our online communication for good, which is available now. If you order, if you, you can go to awaywithwordsbook.com and you can see links to all your favorite retailers. Uh, I want to encourage you to pick up that book and be part of this discussion. I'm really fascinated by and concerned and also optimistic at, at times about some of the ways that uh, we communicate in this time. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Obviously, we're also in the middle of an election season. And I think some of the things that Tim has to say are very important. So I think you'll enjoy this conversation with Tim Carney. Well, I'm glad to have Tim Carney back here on the way home podcast tim thanks for joining me today hey thank you for having me i'm doing this series on kind of the way that christians interact online and civility and all these issues that uh, are kind of addressed in my book away with words that's coming out in august and uh, your book was one of the books i really resonated with when i was working on this project uh, alienated american really opened my eyes to a lot of things i hadn't seen before in terms of just some of the things that keep americans divided and some of the forgotten communities uh, in this country, things like tight. And the idea that has come back to me a lot is this idea, and this is probably my words, not yours, but like these these tight webs of thick community that people need to to flourish. Yep. And so, obviously, we're in a we're in a different environment when I inter- interviewed you last time. But when you think about your book, are you thinking any differently about it uh, in the midst of this pandemic and midst of the racial unrest? Are you thinking more yeah. strongly about some of your conclusions? So what's what's going on in your mind when you when you process all this? Well, uh, some of this is uh, learning new stuff. Um, some of what's going on with everything being locked down because of the virus is the exacerbation of existing problems. So our what I argued in Alienated America was that our problem is that we're too separate. <laughs> and then... Um, we're all told starting in March that we need to be more separate, that um, the things that I called the American dream in my book were the potluck suppers at your parish, or the neighborhood swimming pool, or the, the little leagues, the t-balls, the public schools where parents show up, you know, two or three times a week in the churches where people are there not just on Sundays, but multiple times a week getting together 
physically and not not just virtually, not just over a Facebook group or something, but that, and then similarly that a lot of what was lost was the neighborhoods where the kids all just run around together, where the moms know that even if their husband's off at war, off at work, they're gonna get support from other neighborhood parents or older kids, that kind of thing. Um, and that was exactly what we were supposed to stop doing <laughs> when the virus hit us. So a lot of that was we were social distancing too much before the virus, with the exception of some really strong communities, strong church communities and a lot of highly educated, what I call the, the elite communities. Um, the question, the sort of research I want to do as we start to emerge from all of this is what has been the effect? Um, if I argue that not knowing your neighbors and not belonging to enough things led to emotional, mental, spiritual, and physical suffering, has that suffering been exacerbated under this lockdown? That's, I mean, we don't have the data on that yet. Um, anecdotes point in both directions, but that's one of the big questions I wanna look at going forward. Yeah, I am curious about that, Tim, because on the one hand, your book is in the back of my mind as we kind of entered this, the shutdowns and just thinking just how much we take for granted the kind of social gatherings that we don't even think about and sometimes almost don't want to go. We roll our eyes, oh, another birthday party. Oh, we got to go to this stupid meeting tonight or we got to, yep. we got, we got another baseball game, another this or that. But then when you take that out of a society, it really, I mean, it can't be good. You know, it, it frays the fabric that will weave it together. On the other hand, I do wonder if there's been supercharged, not just families being together. I know in our family, you know, we spent, I didn't travel for four months like I normally do and worked from home and meal, you know, we normally try to have meals together. We had every meal together, walking outside. I talked to my neighbors more in the last four months than I have. Yep. And, I, and we're pretty neighborly, but we just, so there was a lot more of the neighborliness happening. So I'm just curious, you know, there's obviously going to be good and bad. Obviously, as you see protests, which, you know, I'm for protests, peaceful protests. You were out there with some of the protesters uh, reporting, but uh, some of the, the rioting and some of that stuff, I do wonder if that is some built up after four months of being locked down. So I'm, I'm curious what you think of all that. I think that's right. Um, so I would, I, I spoke about how this could all be a social negative that we're cut off from these things and that alienation feeds alienation. But you pointed to two ways in which the lockdowns could cut the other way. One is that the rat race was temporarily suspended. Like yeah. your travel lacrosse team was canceled. So if your kids were going to play, it was sort of in the neighborhood park across the street, even if that was technically illegal in a lot of places. Um, and I had more over the fence conversations with my over the fence neighbors during this lockdown than ever before, in part because I was home. I'd take a break at three in the afternoon and do yard work and see my neighbor who both of us would have been at work at three in the afternoon. The other is a way that hardship brings us together. When I went around, and I didn't end up including this in the book, and now I wish I had. When I went around to different towns and I would say, like, what's it like living here? How well do you know your neighbors? Whether it was the towns where people were lamenting the loss of close community or celebrating that they had it, they always spoke about some joint common suffering. In the New York area, it was it could have been 9-11. In some places, it was just 
oh, they were going to tear down a couple blocks to build a highway through here. And we had to save the neighborhood. It was some kid got run over by a car. It was bad things that were objectively bad, but had this positive effect of giving somebody, giving a neighborhood a joint cause. And so this is not exactly a cause. There wasn't much we could do to, to stop the virus, except ironically staying apart, but it was a joint experience and we couldn't stop the virus, but we could ameliorate some of the effects. Immediately people are going to their neighbors and saying, hey, you know, you're 80. Maybe you don't want to go to the grocery store. I'll pick up your groceries and drop them off. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there was all sorts of um, stuff like that. There, there's new volunteer opportunities to hand out the, the, the meals that kids usually get at school. And so those two aspects that we're in it together and the slowing down of the rat race could have a community building effect. Um, but on the other hand, there's that. So yeah, I was at the protest. So specifically, this one uh, woman shouted at the White House, look, you think we're going to go away? We're not going to go away. We got nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. And she wanted to emphasize that that wasn't the only reason she was out there, out of boredom. But when you see the anger, when you see the rage, when you see that exactly one form of social activity is allowed in most cities, and that was protesting, yes, you'll have more protesting, but also you'll have more anger, more rage. So I do think the lockdowns have led people to seek other activities. Some of them are good. The protests, I think, are fine. But the rioting, I think, is is a fruit of that. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, There was a time, I would say, maybe March maybe all of March and some of April where there was kind of that post nine 11, we're all in this together patriotic duty. And then it kind of quickly evaporated. Can you explain some of the reasons for that? I mean, I I think I have an idea, but I'd like to hear it from you first. So, I mean, politics was inevitably part of this. Uh, Gretchen Whitmer and Andrew Cuomo, governors of Michigan and New York, sort of became national heroes for their response to the virus. But uh, Whitmer's rules bugged a lot of people. In other words, you often encounter people who will impose rules, whether it's, you know, uh, your cable provider or somebody else who bugs you. But when the person imposing the rules and bugs you is then celebrated for obvious partisan political reasons by the news media, and you're saying, wait a second, she literally closed off the, the garden aisle in my grocery store. So I can't just plant my tomatoes this year um, while I have nothing else to do. I can't go to my own vacation home, this little cabin on a lake where we have two canoes and some fishing rods. I'm prohibited from doing that. Mm. That people see those rules that, you know, governments, et cetera, always impose and that that gets held up as a political uh, hero. I think without, I think she as a political figure helped spark a lot of the anger of the anti-lockdown protests. I had some beefs with my governors and my county executives. I'm a, a writer for the Examiner. I have quite an outlet to say, hey, by the way, it's ridiculous that I can't fish on a bank. And even there, I saw sort of ideology bordering on religion of people saying, come on, make a sacrifice together with us. And I thought, I wasn't giving up school to make a sacrifice. I was giving up school because we were afraid that it was going to spread a virus. 
I'm not here as some, you know, uh, almost spiritual sacrifice. So you saw there were cultural lines in the differences. You have these public figures, where there's de Blasio, the mayor of New York, uh, et cetera. And some of them seem to be focusing, de Blasio is a good example, my county executive in Montgomery County, Maryland, who seemed to be, uh, to put it charitably, who seemed to believe that religious gatherings were more dangerous than other types of gatherings. Um, and that really led to uh, resentment. So a quick, rapid, across-the-board shutdown, to me, seemed prudent. As a parent, this is what I do. Like, I'll walk in, things are just out of control. I say, okay, everybody in the backyard, you're not allowed back in. Then after I catch my breath, I say, okay, you're allowed in. Okay, fine, you do this, you do that. And that's the way I felt like my state did it. But once you got past that quick, across-the-board lockdown, you started to see who was playing favorites, who was getting celebrated for a pointless policy. I don't know, what's your theory? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right about that. I, I actually think, well, I had I had a couple theories. At the beginning of, of the lockdown, in early March, I told a colleague, you can lock America down maybe for a month, maybe two months, but that's about it. We're not like other countries. And I think I was right about that. I think number two, what hurt, what, what I think hurt the solidarity is I think we have to admit, you know, the, the there's just a, a loss of trust at almost every level. Right. Yep. So uh, there's a loss of trust in the government. I don't think the president has helped that with his his behavior, you know, just the way he he sometimes can be unserious, whether you like him or, or don't like him. You know, in terms of what the federal government response is actually pretty robust, but his own personal behavior. But I also think it really hurts public trust with public health officials when you encourage one type of large gathering and discourage another. People see through that. That hurts. And then we already had these existing divisions and we're in an election year. So, you know, the more afraid people are, the more they're unemployed, the more there's, there, there's also this kind of class divide, right? Like with people who aren't as affected, they can work from home from now till Jesus comes. And there's other people who, yep. you know, a shutdown they're means they don't job. have, yeah. they don't have employment and they don't have a job. And yes, they're getting, people are getting unemployment. But it's more than that. People need meaningful work and identity. Yeah, so. I mean, surprisingly, people are not happy just being cut a check and told, we don't right. actually need your work right now. You're non-essential. You stay at home. That's not, in fact, a satisfying life. And I uh, lost some you know, stops on my book tour, but basically have had everything I, I need from employment, from people relying on me, uh, and most of the ability to deliver what uh, people need from me. My children's, you know, Latin and math suffered a little bit under my <laughs> as opposed to yeah. the, the professionals we were hiring. Um, but uh, so the all the people sort of making the decisions, the government officials, so the people leading the conversation, the commentators, most of us were fine. And so to see somebody saying, you know, let us get our lives back, it was so easy. And I thought the most, everybody would say, oh, you just want to get your nails done or you just want a haircut. Um, I thankfully don't need a haircut. My wife provides them or me. Um, but it, it was so demeaning because what we were missing, a lot of people were missing work where you get a sense of meaning. Heck, we were missing school. So we had to take care of all our kids. But even aside from the school thing, which is a giant thing on its own, missing church matters. Missing our neighborhood coffee shop, pub, just the main street that we walk down 
missing our mm-hmm. little league. I run a t-ball out of my parish. I think I talked about that in Alienated America, but I canceled my t-ball season. It broke my heart. That was something where every Friday, all these families would get together and mom didn't have to come up with a meal plan on Friday night because you were always going to have pizza or burgers or fish fry uh, every Friday in the spring during uh, the t-ball season. And you lose that. You lose the opportunity, as I described it, to bring your kids somewhere and ignore them while they run around. Um, all of these losses were real, but they were diminished by so much of the, the commentary class as us just being upset that we couldn't get our nails done or get our hair cut. Yeah, I, I, I think that really exacerbated our division. And even, you know, I, I've noticed since 2016, and I, reading your book really helped me see it. There's a divide between, you know, the Twitter class and, and real life. And and I and you know I count myself in that group. I'm I'm on Twitter a lot. I write. I'm an executive position. We're interacting with peers and all that. But there's such a divide between that, and there's almost like a disdain for ordinary people uh, that I think uh, the pandemic exacerbated a little bit. And it seems like that divide has deepened. Has it not? I, I think so. Um, and again, the belittling of, I, I got a lot of people saying, boo, hoo, hoo, you can't fish or go to church and your yeah. t-ball was canceled. And from certain perspective, if you're talking, if you look one day at a story, I'm trying to be charitable here, of somebody dying on a ventilator and, uh, or not for a lack of a ventilator in Italy or not being able to see their husband while they die or, or whatever these stories are. If you look at the economic costs of this, it does sound small for me to talk about T-ball or Sunday mass in person as opposed to over YouTube or, or anything like that or downtown and the, and the coffee shop and the stained glass pub. Those things are do all seem small. But part of what I think we need to realize is that these, these things that seem like the, the dressings around the American dream are the American dream, that it is where we find meaning. Like mm-hmm. I would, I would not sacrifice somebody's life so that I could have T-ball say that if all of us are going to give up church and social gatherings, that that's, that's actually a really, really big thing. And it's disastrous. And we can yeah. point to the sociological data that I do in the book of, well, actually your, your lifespan is shorter and you're more likely to die of drugs yeah. or bad yeah. heart attacks if you're not connected to the community. But even that is like secondary to the fact that like, this is what humans are made for. We are made to love our neighbor. Mm -hmm. That's good. I want to pivot a little bit to talk about, you know, the way that Christians interact online, should communicate online. Obviously, you know, the internet's here to stay. So my book doesn't really talk about, hey, like, you know, margin and you know, Sabbath time and screen time, which are all very important conversations and smarter people have talked about. But the the truth is we're not going back. We're not going to be Amish. We're going to be using social media. We're going to be doing all this. So how do we do this well in a way that doesn't exacerbate divides, but actually bridges them? You have any thoughts about that as a communicator and a Christian? First thing I would say is in our own circles where we send our kids to schools, which are Catholic schools, we have found that there is a that for children, there's like total opposition to smartphones and social media. So it makes it really easy for us. We didn't even mm-hmm. really have to make the decision. Our kids don't get an iPhone or our kids don't get right. social media accounts because everybody else is doing it. 
So they weren't begging for an Instagram because they didn't have friends who were begging for an Instagram. They, they, uh, and if they are begging for a smartphone, it's because they're really begging for our attention because I'm paying more attention to my phone than I am to my child. So that's the first part. But as far as sort of as adults, public figures, that sort of thing, Twitter tempts me to be uncharitable in so many ways. Like the, the fact that every possible opinion is out there makes it easy to say, oh, look at these horrible people who are saying whatever, when really I had to search out that horrible opinion. Now, that's not what Jesus would do is say, you know, who is the one person who we can get angry at? That's not what he wants us to do. I actually found uh, making a deliberate effort to be charitable online, like literally looking for enemies to love. Now, of course, this makes you new enemies. I mean, there's, there was an incident where some guy did something pretty bad on Twitter. And he's a guy who I'm, I generally don't like the professional work that he does. And then people started going after his wife. And like, then 24 hours later, we're still going after him. And I just thought, you have a bad tweet. Like, there's, there's absolutely nothing for us all to gain from keeping ganging up on, on him. And if I've got, I've got 50,000 followers. And so I thought if some of them say, okay, you know what? You don't have to agree with bad guy X to decide it's okay to lay off bad guy X and Mrs. X as well. <laughs> Again, that wasn't greeted with a lot of, that wasn't, my argument wasn't welcomed online. And it took me overcoming my desire to continue dunking on this guy. <laughs> Like I wanted to do it and it was only because I wanted to and realized that wasn't the Christian thing to do that I, I put that out there almost as a, a prophylactic so that the next time I'm tempted to beat somebody up, I know somebody could throw, hey, Carney, you're the one who a month ago was saying not to go after Yeah, that yeah. Well, that's why I wrote this book because <laughs> I'm also writing it to myself like, okay, I can't be a jerk online because I'm, I wrote this whole book about it. There is this, I want to talk about this mob mentality cancel culture that is so prevalent on Twitter. And, you know, as a conservative, I mostly see this as a problem of the left, but we have to be honest that I think the impulse to do it seems bipartisan that, you know, how easy it is to just join a mob with, you know, a few taps of our thumbs, right. To, to dunk on somebody and then really ruin their life. And I think of multiple stories in the last year where people's lives have been really hurt because yep. the mobs went after him. And sometimes we find out the story wasn't even true. Right. So we think of the, yeah. the kid at the March for life. Right. Yep. And we think of, there's numerous stories. I think of, I, I have the story in my book that probably most people have forgotten about, but a, a black Christian worker at a subway who didn't even have Twitter was falsely accused of being racist or, or something like that. Lost her job, got her job back because of a mob went after her and the story wasn't even true. And so just talk about that impulse and why we're so, you know, there's, there's so much desire for us to want to just crush people every day on Twitter. Yep. Well, so a lot of what I argued in my book is that people inevitably want to join something. And Mm. so if they don't have access to, you know, uh, I keep coming back to a local congregation, a PTA, a neighborhood where people know each other, even like I'm proud to be an Ohio State alum or whatever. If they don't have access to natural organic community, they will join something else and often it'll be unfortunate. And in real life, I'm talking about white nationalism. So 
talking about MS-13. Um, mm-hmm. Talking about even ISIS, like the, the men who joined ISIS who were interviewed, they're like, I never belonged to anything in my life. And then ISIS welcomed me. And an online mob is sort of that. It's like, oh, we all agree. I've got everybody on my side. So like the desire to join is natural. And so it's hard for somebody like me or you who's constantly saying like, you should be part of something bigger to say, whoa, <laughs> what's the difference between a mob and, you know, an actual organic group that, that provides real um, identity. Uh, and sometimes for me, the way I think about it as a, me- a professional media critic is if there's a point that hasn't been made, or I, I look at a politician, if a politician has gotten away with something and nobody else has pointed it out, it is my duty and it's my job and I find pleasure in it to go after that politician. Now, maybe it's not the nicest thing in the world to be constantly pointing out negatives in people. I call it accountability journalism. You could, you know, Mm -hmm. call it uh, something less favorable if you wanted to. But what I try to do is say, this has got to be something that it's, it's worth saying if other people aren't saying it. So there's times that I've seen a really bad tweet. I just want to be like, that's totally wrong. And I look and nobody's replied. And Ideally, if I'm going to respond and say that's totally wrong, I'm going to say, well, you say this, but actually, if you look at this data, if you divide by population, if you throw in the fact that Obama said the same exact thing four years ago, whatever you want to do, adding some factual context is a good corrective to a a social media thing you see. Um, But if it's just facially bad and other people are already saying this was a really bad thing to say, you shouldn't have said that. No matter how much you agree with that mob, I think you shouldn't join it. And then the other thing is people with a big following. Again, I've got five figures of followers. I've tried to avoid ever the the quote tweet or you know the Facebook equivalent or whatever of just sort of holding up the bad tweet and saying, this is really bad. Because that amounts to standing on a stage and like dragging up the bad guy and pointing to him and saying, get him, get him. So- yeah. So that's an extra responsibility for anybody with a significant following. So I will reply directly. Like I'll see a reporter say something. I'm like, oh, but what about X? Mm-hmm. Tempted to quote tweet and say, this guy completely ignores X. Delete the quote tweet, go back, reply and say, mm-hmm. you say that. But I'm thinking X. And you're just surprised how a little bit of word choice difference either makes it so that it's not embarrassing to me if I'm wrong, but also they don't feel backed into a corner. And if they're wrong, they can say, okay, now I see where you're coming from. Hmm. It does seem, and I've, I've read a few books about this and I've thought about this a lot. I think you've even hinted at this or, or written about it somewhere, but like it has all the elements of Christianity, uh, judgment, shame, a scapegoat, you know, the Bible talks about that, you know, someone bearing the sins of everybody worship in many ways without all the grace, right? With, with I, zero possibility for having your sins washed away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is I, no, there it, is no uh, reconciliation. It, it, don't you see, there's just religious impulses in wanting, wanting to, and also to be an identity, right? Of, I want to be seen as being on the right team. I want people to know that I'm on the right side and I'm with the right people and I'm not those people, right? Yeah. And um, so the cancel culture can be seen as 
I mean, because some liberals like to make the point, and they're not totally wrong, that Christians practice cancel culture in their own institutions. If, you know, if my parish tried to have an event that was, you know, how to, um, how to celebrate polyamory, <laughs> like, right. I would, I would be like, no, you absolutely can't have it. If my local pub wanted to have it, I would still object, but it'd be a lot more offensive to me if my parish was doing right. that. Um, and so we do sort of say, no, there are admission standards at our, at our schools, at our universities, at our churches. There are certain things that we'll just turn up our nose at in the public, but we'll say not on my territory. Mm-hmm. Now, imagine if the New York Times was your church. That's the way it seems when mm. a Tom Cotton or a Brett yeah. Stevens or some conservative gets to be employed or make an argument. If, if Kevin Williamson gets hired by the Atlantic, it would be like me finding out that, you know, the head of Planned Parenthood was our new deacon in my Right, in right, right. That's how we understand it then. Yeah, that makes sense. So we need to understand when these institutions that previously or purportedly had this idea that we're a free exchange of ideas, all the news that's fit to print. That that's actually not what's happening. It, it's more of a religious exercise with church discipline and y- you know an orthodoxy that must be adhered to. Yeah, and orthodoxy is is not a bad word coming from <laughs> me at least. Right. Like uh, the, the, ten years ago, orthodoxy in the New York Times was a bad word. Now it, I don't think they could unironically say that. But like we do believe in orthodoxies. We do believe in dogmas. Like as a Catholic, like dogmatic, you know, doesn't necessarily mean a bad thing. And so, but just acknowledging that they have churches and purity tests. So Jonathan Haidt, Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, in The Righteous Mind, he was a psychiatrist who sort of started by making these types that conservatives are interested in um, purity and, and ritual and sacramentalism and liberals are interested in open-mindedness and uh, and the more he looked at it, the more he said, okay, well, that's an example of actually a liberal purity. That's an example of actually a liberal sacrament. That's, and there's an example of a conservative, you know, pushing against the time. And he realized that the, the conservative mind and the liberal mind both had very similar demands, but different orientations towards it. And so just to think that they have their sacraments, they have their dogmas, they have their orthodoxies. And we don't think sacraments, dogmas, and orthodoxies are bad. We just think theirs are wrong, and they don't admit that they are sacraments, dogmas, and orthodoxies. Mm -hmm. A couple more questions before we're done. Given this, are you nervous about the future of liberal democracy and pluralism, or do you think it endures? I know that's a question for a whole podcast, but... yeah. So yeah, we used to sort of have everybody saying we can all get along, um, and now they're turning more of the sort of institutions that were supposed to be neutral playing fields into their own churches. I don't, maybe I'm foolish, but I just don't get as upset as other people, as pessimistic. When I read some of my conservative Christian friends who are more like post-liberal integralist types, yeah. I think, okay, one point is we do need to stop maybe playing some of the neutrality game and just assert ourselves. Like four years ago, I would have said, let's not get government money for our schools 
And now I'm thinking they're already going to shut down our try to shut down our schools even without the government money. So let's establish that we have as much right to exist as they do, rather than try to retreat into a little corner. Um, but I don't have. And again, it's just a sense. Maybe I'm I'm just a person sitting there, you know, while the, the town is burning, saying this is fine. But I I feel that our liberal democracy, et cetera, will uh, persist. But again, I think the important thing is we need to belong to things rather than just one team. If you're just resistance or just BLM or just you know white Christian, um, then that's not healthy. What's made America strong is that you're a million different things. That you're uh, a New Yorker, you're a Mets fan, you're a Catholic, you're Irish, you're from this particular town, you belong to this pool, you go to this swimming club, and hopefully across all of those, there's tons of diversity. That's what promotes social peace. So as long as we have that Tocquevillian sense of belonging to many different things, I think we'll be strong. We don't have that as well as we used to, which is the reason to worry. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, and I guess the, the follow-up to that is for Christians who want to live faithfully in this time, in this age, including the way they communicate online, including the way that we participate in our representative republic, what, what's some advice that you give? So try to proceed with and exude love is a way to start. Day-to-day politics is tough. The Trump era has been a little liberating for me because it's very easy to like say when he's right and say when he's wrong. And so I try to think, what am I doing in this different time? And I think state, state the truth. And if, you, if, you, if people think you're honest and if people see that you start with love, they'll forgive you for stating the uncomfortable truth a lot of the time. Not always. You might get canceled. But why haven't I been canceled when I've written columns against gay marriage, when I've written stuff about abortion being wrong, even in the case of rape, cases of rape and incest? Because I took very much care when writing about these sensitive issues and because people said, well, Carney's one of those guys who says whatever he thinks, even when it's crazy. So mm-hmm. state the truth, begin with love. Not, it's not foolproof, but it, it makes it easier for, I think, to survive as, as a countercultural Christian in this world. Mm, mm, that's good. And I guess an, an addendum to that would be go out and get Alienated America. And I, I, I have recommended it so many times, Tim, to a lot of people to understand not just Trump voters, Trump primary voters, but really mm-hmm. a section of people that really were forgotten by, by a lot of folks. It's been enormously helpful. The other thing that I want to encourage people to get this book about is this idea of these tight webs of community that we take for granted that are so important. Um, so do get that. And then also want to encourage folks to follow uh, Tim Carney on Twitter. I think it's at Tim Carney and your work uh, at the Washington Examiner. But Tim, thanks for joining me today. Appreciate your work, man. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Way Home Podcast with Daniel Darling. For more information, you can visit DanielDarling.com. If you do like this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. We also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast. You can follow me at at DanDarling on Twitter or go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Daniel M. Darling. I also want to encourage you again to check out my latest book, Away With Words, and you can visit awaywithwordsbook.com and find out special pre-order bonuses if you order by August 18th. 
Thank you for listening in to The Way Home Podcast. This is a production of the National Religious Broadcasters. Thank you.